Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about the case approach to suicide assessment. And to do that, we're very honored to have join us tonight. Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Dr. Shea is the founder and director of the Training Institute for Suicide Assessment and Clinical Interviewing. He is a widely respected innovator in the fields of suicide prevention and clinical interviewing. He's the author of seven books and numerous articles, including The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment and the textbook Psychiatric Interviewing, The Art of Understanding, now in its third edition. It was selected by the British Medical Association as the 2017 First Prize Book of the Year in Psychiatry. Dr. Shea, Sean, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Uh, Aaron, thanks a lot to all of you. It's a real honor to be here. I'm actually uh, genuinely excited about the opportunity. That's so great. And, and you maybe could just start off by just saying, uh, what is the case approach and how might it differ from other approaches and tools for assessing suicide? Yeah, the, the case approach is an interviewing strategy uh, that's flexible, that you're always able to adapt to the unique needs of the client or patient that you're working with. It's uh, embedded inside another interview. It's never done just by itself. And it's purely a method for uncovering suicidal ideation, behavior, planning, and intent. That's, a, that's all it does. It's a modest thing that it does, but it's a critical thing. So it is not a suicide assessment protocol. A suicide assessment protocol, you need to uncover all the risk and protective factors and warning signs. Then you have to uncover the suicidal ideation, behavior, planning, and intent. And then you have to do the clinical formulation of risk. It's only one of those three components. It's mm -hmm. how do you uncover suicidal ideation, behavior, planning, and intent. Um, in the same interview, you obviously have to do all those other things, but the case approach is not where you do it uh, and doesn't pretend that it's doing it. Uh, on the other hand, it literally is something that we feel is uh, hopefully one of the best, if not the best ways of helping a, a person in great pain, especially those at very high risk or intent to kill themselves, to actually share their ideation. What led you to seeing that this is a very important part of doing a good assessment you know given that you when you arrived on the scene you saw what tools were available what kind of things jumped out at you oh well that's actually um a, a, an interesting question in the sense that uh it goes back to the idea of how interviewing uh i felt was so important and uh at this point, I think actually I'll skip ahead to this particular interviewing set of techniques, which is the case approach for eliciting the suicidal ideation, behavior planning, and intent. Uh, what it offers the field of suicidology, and it's actually a, a it's the first time that the field of clinical interviewing, which is where I was really born, raised, and have done much of my work and continue to do much of my work, has united with the field of suicidology or intersected. And I find cross-pollination 
between disciplines, uh, or in this sense, actually different uh, topical areas, is often where innovations occur. So what the case approach does is we truly believe in, and by the way, I used to run a, uh, for four and a half years, I ran the Diagnostic and Evaluation Center at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, that was a dual unit uh, or a triple unit in that it was a ED, a psych ED solely, a full intake center uh, in psychiatry where we did 60 minute assessments and a telephone triage center, which also did crisis calls. So in the same center, we did short ED interviews full intakes and telephone intakes and assessments. Um, so in, in, in that center, it became very apparent to me because I had a rare opportunity, which is that the medical director, I could, I literally, um, every person who came in between 7 uh, a.m. in the morning and 11 p.m. at night was double interviewed. Not, and I'm not including a triage uh, nurse. I mean, actually, after the triage nurse had triaged them into one of the three units, then a, a, an interview was done by a, a master-level nurse clinician or sometimes graduate students. Uh, that clinician then reported to a psychiatrist the clinical presentation, and the psychiatrist went in with them and re-interviewed the same patient. So I had, Aaron, a really remarkable opportunity that actually I, I know very few people have ever had this. I watched people presenting in true psychiatric crises, interviewed by different clinicians within 15 minutes. Uh, I'm telling you, it was mind-altering for me um, <laughs> in the sense that they got different information, these two clinicians. And one of the things that really struck me is, and about sensitive topics in particular, and then about suicide ideation, planning, and intent also as a major issue. They got different, ra sometimes radically different information, including with what the person was planning on doing, their method of choice. Some clinicians, literally the patient had not shared at all a recent suicide attempt. Um, and one of the things that was so um, fascinating to us is that we certainly saw that you have to be empathic if you, that's a prerequisite you have to be good at listening and make an empathic bond with this uh, a person who's at high risk but that the empathy was a prerequisite but not sufficient at uncovering the seriousness of the intent and what we discovered is is that you could take two very empathic interviewers equally empathic one got the information about the method of choice and the other didn't. And what it was, was how they phrased their questions and how they sequenced their questions. And we began to understanding that there's actual techniques in clinical interviewing. Um, and overall, this began to demonstrate to us the need to explore later and see if we could actually develop a sequential methodology that could help us uh, to raise these topics and explore them. Just real quickly, part of your comment, Aaron, was how, how is this different? What does it offer? First of all, one of the things that we developed was what we called the field of validity techniques, which we'll look at in just a little bit. The second thing is we developed a field called Facilix, which is the study of how to make interviews conversational. And Facilix is the study of how clinicians structure interviews and utilize their time and make transitions from topic to topic. Um, those two fields were then brought to bear on uncovering suicidal ideation. And that's what makes it very unique. There's no methodology that I know of in the field of suicidology about uncovering suicidal ideation, behavior, planning, intent that was built on those two fields. 
So this was not just an issue of, oh, these are interesting questions that we think work very effectively. All of us have those, and we pay attention to those and sometimes integrate them into the case approach. But these are literally structurally different types of techniques. And that is very unique to the case approach. Uh, a second thing is it's very conversational. Uh, unlike other approaches, uh, we never use cue sheets. We never look at a computer screen. You know, we'll take the laptop, move it off your lap. Uh, we'll take, uh, there's no uh, note taking during this. And the other thing that we discovered in, uh, I saw when I watched these people, some of them at very high risk. I mean, some people who were probably planning on killing themselves that night in that ED, mm -hmm. if we let them go, um, was that it's one thing to screen for suicidal ideation with someone who's not in that amount of intense pain and intense intensity to do it. Um, it's a whole different thing to actually get someone who is in that amount of pain to share. So it was very important that the case approach both screen, but as soon as the person began to share suicidal ideation, to be able to conversationally explore the extent of their suicidal ideation at that moment in time. And that is distinctly different than uh, other units or other uh, methodologies of doing this. Yeah, that that does. Um, I, thinking about some of the other approaches that I know of, namely the Columbia suicide scale, that is really different, what you just explained. Um, let me ask you, Sean, how did you then go on to develop the case approach? How did you put that together? was built from exactly what we said, which was we got to watch, I'd watch people and I'd see who got the right information. By the way, I might add that it was not always the psychiatrist who got the right information, the oh, second sure. interviewer. Yeah, okay? yeah um, I don't doubt that at all. Sometimes, sometimes it was a graduate student that got the information. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't matter to me. I just want to see what worked. And what we began to do is we tried to delineate what the structural, the linguistic structure of the question was. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, it's called gentle assumption. Uh, and actually, if you took one thing from this talk, it would be a very valuable thing to take from it, which mm -hmm. is, is once you've examined uh, the extent of action on a method a person has shared, okay, many of these people who are truly intent on killing themselves have not shared their method of choice. If I make one principle clear here, a person who really wants to kill themselves, when you're asking them about suicide, the first method they talk about is not infrequently their method of choice. That's because they're hesitant. They're worried you're going to stop them. Uh, they want to see what you do with it. They don't tell you about the gun because they're worried you'll take the gun. Uh, so they tell you all about an overdose that they did. Sometimes it's not the second one. Sometimes it's not the third one. So we want to seek that method of choice with a person. So here's an interviewing technique that will help with that. If the person explains, say you raise the topic and you say, boy, Aaron, with everything you've been going through, have you been having any thoughts of killing yourself? And you say, yes. I say, oh, what have you thought of doing, Aaron? And you say, I've thought of overdosing. And I then explore your extent of the OD. Okay, how far you went with that. Uh, almost all mental health professionals that I've watched uh, will hunt their ask about other methods. But here is how they ask it. I'd say 85% of people will say this, uh, Aaron, have you thought of any other ways of killing yourself? Now, what we learned to do was to not say, have you thought of other ways of killing yourself? But we will say, Aaron, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? 
Now that technique, unbeknownst to me, had actually already been developed by sex researchers, Pomeroy and company. And it's essentially called gentle, or we named it gentle assumption. But what they found was that if they asked, uh, a sex history by definition is sensitive. If they turned to a, a typical uh, person said, uh, do you masturbate? Surprisingly, few people were masturbating in the United States. <laughs> they changed how they asked the question. They said, that can't be true like that. So let's ask it differently. And they started to say, when you masturbate, what do you experience? And lo and behold, Americans were masturbating again. Okay, <laughs> so I think they lost their uh, Nobel Prize for that uh, uh, on the discovery, but uh, they did get at the truth. Look at the linguistic structure. It's very simple. Instead of saying, have you thought of other ways of killing yourself? You simply say, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? This is very easily taught to people. Uh, you really can help them to gain it. And if you role play with them, you say, remember, you got to begin it with the word what. So after you found that first method, when you hunt for the next method, always begin with the word what. Uh, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? Now, sometimes we, we make it a little more um, intimate in that we might use the first name of the person. I might say, Aaron, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? Uh, but I'm telling you, this digs stuff up. Uh, and it, what it digs up is life-saving material. You know, one of the other things that we're just trying to help people to, to really think about is that with these really high-risk clients who are in agony, um, at, at first blanche, we are opponents to them. You know, as mental health professionals, because we're always trying to do good, we sort of can project that they're knowing we're trying to help. Sometimes they're brought in even against their will. But the thing is, is that they are worried that we will stop them from getting out of this pain. And that's a hurdle. And so we have to do everything we can to build that therapeutic alliance. And I mean, we're talking subtle differences, like I just said, in that one technique could be the thing that leads that person to share with one person and not another. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking with Dr. Sean Christopher Shea about the case approach to suicide assessment. Tosha, you have the next question? So that gentle assumptions was such a great teaser for us. Can you, Sean, break down, um, starting with the basics, uh, the case approach? What does it look like clinically? How does one do that? Yeah, what it looks at, it's called the chronological assessment of suicide events because uh, from, as I said, that field of facilics where you study how people structure interviews, one of the things we learned about that was that it really helps people to have discrete arenas that they're trying to explore so that they know that they've gotten the information that they feel is important to help the client, then move to the next arena. If they just simply look at an initial intake, which is, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of data points that could help the patient, people get lost in it, the clinicians. Um, the same with suicidal ideation. So we cut it into what we called four content regions. The presenting suicidal ideation, meaning if you ask the client, are they having suicidal thought, what do they present with? Or what do they spontaneously raise if they raise suicide spontaneously? Explore that. Then when you're done with that and you feel comfortable, I've got what I need to know to help this person. I have a good idea if they're presenting suicidal ideation. Move to the recent suicidal ideation, which is two months, the two months before that. Uh, when you're done with that, go to past suicide attempts. And then when you're done with that, 
the fourth region you go is you go the whole way back to the current moment of the interview. Mm-hmm. And that's where you ask about what they're having as far as suicidal thoughts during the interview itself and what they project their intent is next. So in that last region is where you might say, well, geez, Jim, how are you feeling about killing yourself right now? Okay. But those are the four regions. But then what the case approach does is it takes these validity techniques and there's seven that we use. You saw the gentle assumption, but there's seven that we use. Those are all sequenced differently within each four regions. And I cannot emphasize enough because sometimes people don't understand this about the case approach. They think if they just learn the validity techniques, they know how to do it. No, the validity techniques are just, they're, they're, they're technical, they're, thing, they're tools we use to do the case approach. Within each of the four regions, the sequencing of the validity techniques is incredibly important. Wow. It's really um, uh, like yep. broken down to a science. It's a, it's a skill. Uh, and it's also, we like to say that, and by the way, you know, these principles of interviewing, this can be done with everything, but just about, I mean, that's uh, too general probably, but I mean, we believe that the entire interview, all the different things that we're exploring that are sensitive topics, there are techniques that can help. If you want to explore psychosis, there are interviewing techniques that help you to explore psychosis. Command hallucinations, there's a whole series of techniques that can allow one to explore command hallucinations more effectively in our opinion. And all of the techniques are built on the foundation that they must be engaging first but then they must try to utilize whatever tools have shown themselves to be effective at helping people to share the truth. And getting the truth is very difficult. So how does one explore that first content region in the case approach? Um, So if I turn to to you, Tosha, and I said, uh, with everything you've been going through, have you been having thoughts of killing yourself? And you said, uh, yes, I have. And I'd say, oh, what have you thought of doing? And let's just say you said, uh, I thought of overdosing. Um, first thing, we, we make what we call a verbal video. What we mean by this is, is that uh, it's easy for students to conceptualize this, uh, is that you're going to ask a series of questions that helps the client to walk you through the extent of their action so that in essence, you can see it in your head. Mm-hmm. So it's a verbal video going on, prompted by your questioning. And what you're going to do is take them from the front to the end of their most recent uh, significant suicidal ideation about that particular method, whatever it is they raise. So I'd turn to you, first thing I'd do is anchor this thing. And I'd say, oh, geez, uh, uh, Tosha, as, um, have you ever gotten any pills? Out? Or no, the first thing I do with that is, if you say pills, you always have to find out what they are. So I'd say, what have you thought of uh, using, let's just say you said aspirin. Um, then I'd say, Please, Toshi, if you've ever gotten uh, an aspirin bottle out uh, while you're having thoughts of killing yourself. We call that the method in hand question. Mm -hmm. And what that does is right from the beginning, it's teasing something apart. A person who has gotten aspirin out in their hands is definitely a different person that has never gotten the bottle out. Okay. The second thing is it's given you a starting point for the verbal video. And then if they say, yeah, mm-hmm. I have done that, you'd say, geez, Tosha, uh, when's the, um, uh, where were you when you were having those thoughts? And you'd say, well, I was at my kitchen table. Uh, and then I'd say, roughly, when was the last time uh, you had the pills out like that? And you'd say, oh, it was about, I'd say two weeks ago. And I'd say, you know what? 
If you could, could you sort of help me to better understand what you were going through that night, Tosha, by sort of walking me through this step by step so I can get a better understanding of what you were going through. So you had the pills out. You were in your kitchen. It was about two weeks ago. What happened next? Then from that point onwards, you use a technique developed by a clinical psychologist, Gerald Pascal, who talks about uh, uh, behavioral incidents which he meant was the cognitive or behavioral things that are, are concrete that come out of an interview. But we then use that to also describe the interviewing technique to get them. So there's sequencing behavioral incidents. I just showed you one. What happened next? Go on. What did you do then? Um, if it was an abuse situation, uh, you might say after your dad hit you, what's the very next thing he said? Uh, but that's a sequencer. Uh, and then there's fact finders which literally asks for a specific fact. Um, so uh, a fact finder with an overdose would be, uh, how many pills did you uh, take out? Did you swallow the pills? Uh, what, and, uh, um, after you swallowed the pills, uh, did you actually uh, get rid of them or where did you put them? Uh, or did you call someone? All of those are fact-finding behavioral instance. In the verbal video, you would just walk them through with sequencers. If they don't give you the information you need about the lethality of their intent, you ask fact-finders. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a that's a, a thoughtful answer there. Uh, I, I picture like, I mean, the other thing is to think about whether these techniques could bring out truth or, I mean, what I was kind of, the, the worry that came to my head is, could they bring out a false confession? Um, ah. If someone said, so, so after you killed him, where did you go to coffee? Okay. And, but I, now that I'm thinking about it and, and I don't know anything about this, but I, I think you'd only be likely to answer that question and sort of be tricked into answering it. If you did indeed kill someone or well, what, actually, you know. though, yeah, but I, I think now you're raising a really valuable uh, a point that I wanted uh, to make is that, um, you, you have to understand the, the, the power of the particular techniques. Uh, so there's a thing called gentle assumption. There's the behavioral instance of Pascal. And, I, and before I forget anything, I just want to make sure something's just crystal clear to make sure this does not sound like an interrogate. The whole issue of a, a, a clinical interview is helping a person to tell their story. The case approach is embedded deep inside an interview. And so you, if you don't help that person to just simply tell their story the way they want to, okay, in the beginning of that interview and engage them, okay, the case approach won't work. You, you have to have engaged this person well. And so the structuring elements are coming later, but after you have already engaged this person carefully. But the other point you did make, leaving the courts completely out of this, uh, as clinicians, we have to be aware of the power of the techniques. So gentle assumption. Uh, by Pomeroy and company. If you look at gentle assumption, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? The truth of the matter is, if you look at it, you'll recognize that that is actually a variant of a leading question. Um, now, there's, you know, you get these axioms in mental health, I think, training, which are problematic, that are axioms are almost always wrong, although there's an axiom right there, because they don't <laughs> consider variations and uniqueness of situations and clients. Leading yes. questions are not always bad. And a good example is if I have somebody who's a perpetrator of domestic violence in my room and I'm trying to find that out and I need a leading question to do it, 
to protect the child in that person's home. I got no problem with that as a mental health professional. Um, but you do have to know it's a leading question. So for instance, gentle assumption, you would not use gentle assumption with an adult who perhaps had a need to please you. So they might give a false answer to that. To an adult who might be intellectually uh, having problems following you. Uh, and I certainly would not use it with children because it could produce a false description by the child, which is why the case approach is not recommended for use with children. It's for adolescents upwards. But you will find that the validity techniques of the case approach uh, are very useful in interviewing the parents of children. Uh, so if you have to find out if there's abuse in a household, these techniques can be very useful. Uh, I hope that answers your question, uh, Al, though. Um, you've talked about uh, stated intent and withheld intent. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. We're approaching the end, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. We only have a the, minute left. Oh, well, uh, the issue with stated <laughs> intent, it's exactly what it means. It's what the client tells you when you ask them about their intent. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. Obviously, a person who is worried that you're going to stop them from getting relief from their pain they may not tell you the truth. So their stated intent might not be very accurate. The withheld intent means they're withholding the intent, which takes the other thing, reflected intent. What we mean by that, it is the behaviors and cognitions of the patient that you can garner from the history through the interview that reflect better their intent. We would argue that a person who takes a pill bottle out, dumps the pills in, puts the pills in their mouth, uh, and then keeps putting them in is a very different person than somebody who did not do that. But interestingly, the stated intent is not always a person purposely misleading us. Sometimes people don't understand their own intent. Mm. So they're saying, no, I'm not, I, I, I'd never do it really. But the truth of the matter is they were, they had a gun in their mouth two days ago. They then decided they weren't going to do it. So now they tell you they're not going to do it. But if you had a gun in your mouth two days ago, geez, that's concerning to me. I think we need to, to help you to get some help. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about the case approach to suicide assessment with Dr. Sean Christopher Shea. Sean, thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Get Psyched. Oh, it was great. It was an honor uh, uh, to be a part of this. And let's hope that this helps uh, somebody to save some lives. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Amaguchi and Al Atkins. If you'd like to learn more about suicide assessment and the case approach, please visit suicideassessment.com. If you or someone you know has had thoughts about suicide, please call 988. If you have comments and questions or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Uh, one thing I just wanted to mention is, is that I, uh, I didn't feel like I could mention this. And I don't know if you can put it in somehow, but, you know, one of the main things we're trying to drive people to, and I really appreciate you listing that website, but we're really trying to drive, we really believe that the case approach saves people's lives. Uh, and we've recently developed two online courses uh, that we really believe are sophisticated and take people to a, a, a master style of, of interviewing when it comes to eliciting suicidal ideation. So we actually do have a website uh, for those courses.
Uh, and we'll put that's it in the I'd show love. notes. That would yeah. be great. Yeah, yeah. that's just a tremendous number of resources on there. Very generous with yeah. how many resources are on oh, there. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a free article on the case approach too. Uh, so on that. That's but. great. So I have a question for you, Sean. Um, yes. I know that you teach the case approach internationally and there's international right. interest in this approach. Um, what have you seen when you give talks internationally uh is this universal or are there modifications that um some clinicians make depending on what area they're from uh well first of all um it's important to realize that once again as i said uh, in the first part of the uh uh, our discussion. The case approach is an interviewing strategy embedded deep into an interview, essentially. Okay. So uh, the uh, the cross-cultural issues and concerns uh, are of critical importance. Uh, so much so that in the psychiatric interviewing textbook, I have a 90-page chapter. It's a full monograph on what we call culturally adaptive interviewing. Mm -hmm. The issue of that is, though, those things must occur in the first part of that interview. Okay. Long before you, if you if you haven't been adapting culturally to the person in the first thirty minutes of the interview, it will help you to do it in the case approach. But it generally doesn't even have to be done by then. There's almost a common language that has occurred. I always like to tell people that there's never just two cultures in a clinical interview. There's three cultures. The third culture is the therapeutic alliance. It is a unique culture. It often uh, has compromises made by both people uh, that allows them to adapt to this very unusual, unique culture that will disappear when the interview is done, or if it's long-term therapy, will disappear when the relationship is done. But it's important to do that in the entire interview. By the time you hit the case approach, the truth of the matter is, it's rather remarkable how often you don't have to change it much at all. And, and the reason I say that is I'll give you a couple examples of that. Uh, first of all, it is used, uh, you know, extensively in Australia and New Zealand. It's used in the Netherlands. Um, and it's been translated into Chinese and Japanese, French and Spanish, um, almost word for word as best they can. Although you and I had discussed a little bit earlier once, uh, Tosha, that it's really fascinating that it's translated into languages that use uh uh, ideograms uh, as part of, of the way that it is written. Uh, so those subtleties are still, uh, you're able to make them. Um, with that in mind, so basically you don't have to do a lot of changing by the time you get to the case approach. On the other hand, wherever you work as a clinician, you want to find out as much as you can about the cultures that you're interacting with that are you know not yours, that you are not familiar with, and ask clinicians for things they've discovered that are useful for them. And sometimes you will come across very specific things for the case approach. I'll give you an example. I was presenting, uh, asked to present in Minneapolis. There's a very large Hmong population there that had fled on Southeast Asia because um, of the violence there. And uh, the man who had invited me, the clinician who had invited me was Hmong. And uh, at the end, we were having a dinner and he you know, was telling me how much he loved it and he loved the case approach. But it was very interesting. He said, there's only one thing I do different. Uh, with a monk. And he said, your shame attenuation for raising the topic, which uh, might go like something like this, with everything you've been going through, have you been having any thoughts of killing yourself? Say, I would change that with a monk population and say, with everything you've been going through, have you ever had any troubles with your spirit wandering? 
And he said, they will know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, now, that's a really nuanced, significant change. But if that's if that's that's the kind of change that could get that person to share with you who would not have shared it with another clinician. Um, mm -hmm. So, by the way, I also uh, always emphasize in teaching uh, what we call culturally adaptive interviewing, um, that clinicians, when you do learn things like that, if it's something that you're not used to saying, uh, you have to be very careful that you're comfortable with it. Um, people will really pick it up as disingenuous right. if, you, if you're phrasing something that you just do not come across as genuinely using, knowing what it means, being comfortable. And that means you uh, frequently have to practice it. I literally tell residents, get in front of a mirror. If somebody has taught you something that is distinctly different than you would use in your culture, practice it. Say it, say it again, say it again, say it again until you're right. And if you're not comfortable with it, just don't do it. It would be better to use the the original phrasing of the phrase than to use mm -hmm. something that comes across disingenuously. Yeah, yeah, it can be disengaging. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, since you know a couple of us are in child and adolescent psychiatry, um, what uh, is the case approach appropriate for the child and adolescent population? Well, as I said uh, earlier, uh, uh, no, uh, in the sense that it is appropriate for adolescents onwards, but it's not appropriate for children. And that's, uh, and I gave an example, the gentle assumption we think is a problem uh, with a child. Um, so that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing where uh, I think that false, uh, false reporting occurs when people are, are, are saying something and they don't even know what they're saying. So you could say, um, what is your, uh, did your, uh, uh, how did your father, where did your uh, father touch you that was inappropriate or that felt you into that? Say, where did your father touch you then that you felt uncomfortable? Well, but if you said that right out of the blue, the child, a five-year-old might think they're supposed to answer that with a yes. And then once the child has done that, then it becomes something that it's hard for them to deny later because it, then they're admitting they were lying. And so then they repeat it to the next interviewer and then before you know it, because of unconscious defense mechanisms, it's an embedded memory, uh, pseudo memory, well, pseudo memory, excuse me. But um, and it, so that's a problem. On the other hand, well, uh, we would love like I know two of you are, are child and adolescent uh, uh, clinicians. We would love people to look at the elements of the case approach and see which ones may be useful for children. I actually think making the verbal videos, in other words, using behavioral incidents, what happened next, what happened next, what happened next, that might be useful with a child because it's not leading anywhere. Uh, and so you may find in child and adolescent work that some elements of the case approach could be useful with children, sure. but it's not designed that way. I will comment on one other thing uh, about the validity techniques. They're useful. Uh, you know, we use them throughout for the case approach. None, there's about 15 validity techniques extant in the literature right now. Seven are used in the case approach. And keeping in mind, they were not developed for suicide. They were developed outside of the field of suicide to uncover sensitive and taboo material. Only one of them was developed purely uh, by... Uh, hmm trying to track down suicidal ideation. And that one is linguistically 
distinct and can then was then translated into a validity technique to be used for other uh, uh, situations. Um, so those techniques can be very useful for raising risk factors. Uh, that's not the case approach. The case approach doesn't do the risk, factor, but you can use the validity techniques of the case approach to sometimes really help with risk factors. When you were do you, you mentioned that when you uh, were comparing physicians to graduate students as interviewers, often there were yeah. the graduate students were doing better than the psychiatrists. Um, did you notice certain themes when there was when the graduate student was doing something better as to why? Like was something getting in the way or was there a theme in terms of the mistakes oh, that psychiatrists? Okay. I, I, I do want to say just one thing. I didn't say that most often they were better. I just said occasionally. Interesting. Okay, and fair enough. Yeah. And the, they were psychiatrists purely because psychiatrists were manning that ED. It would have been the same if that was a psychologist doing the second interview or sure. a counselor. Okay. I um, attached actually, my own uh, my own agenda <laughs> to it and thought to myself, Oh, it's probably because we're arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> well, that well, actually, you raise a, a, a critical point, though, which is it was the technique. It was the phrasing of the questions that was different. And as I said, one of the things I'm not sure we had a chance to uh, I'm not sure I emphasize this a point enough uh, in that first uh, part of the talk, which is. Um, there really are interviewing techniques. And they, when done sensitively, they're extraordinarily powerful, in my opinion, for uncovering incest, uh, substance abuse or abuse, um, suicide, homicide, uh, um, therapeutic, uh, not following up with therapy, whether it's not doing your cognitive mm -hmm. uh, uh, homework in cognitive therapy or not taking a medication in the way uh, that it's supposed to. So, for instance, for meds, you could simply turn to a person and you'd say, um, uh, let's say you're following them for uh, depression and you could turn to them and say, um, you know, Jim, uh, I find that um, it's uh, sometimes hard for people to remember to take their meds uh, every day. And I'm just wondering, uh, especially uh, sometimes you have some meds you take in the morning, some meds you take in the night, that could be very hard to, re uh, to remember. And so I'm just wondering uh, how many times in the past since we met, uh, how many times do you think you might have missed a dose because you just couldn't remember it? Well, that's actually a shame attenuation first. It's very easy to forget. Okay. And then it was actually a gentle assumption. I didn't say, have you missed any doses? I said, how many doses have you missed? Um, so um, these techniques can be taught. And the point I was trying to make, which to us is just such an important point, which is you know, I, I came out of a family of surgeons, so I, I've scrubbed in on a fair amount of surgery. And then as a medical student, I scrubbed in on surgery and stuff. And, um, you know, one of the things that comes across in watching surgeons that was very powerful to me is uh, they really do use techniques. Um, they really, if, if a surgeon turns to the first, uh, and says, I want a seven blade, she doesn't want an eight blade. She wants a seven <laughs> blade because a seven blade does something different. Um, I honestly believe that that amount of intentionality can occur in our field. In fact, should occur in our field. In other words, there's a time to use a gentle assumption and there's a time when not with a child. No. With an adult uh, hiding a suicidal intent that could kill them? Yes. Um, there's different types of shame attenuations. I just talked about one. One of the things that we teach people is, is that 
You can use a straight, simple shame attenuation with everything you've been going through if you've been having any thoughts of killing yourself. Or you can extend it uh, or make it more intimate. So if the person's been telling me that they lost their spouse in a car wreck and they've been crying earlier in the interview and I've reached this point where their pain is obviously at the surface, I might say, instead of with everything you've been going through, I'd say this, I'd say, with the loss of Anna, and she sure sounds like she was a wonderful, essentially an irreplaceable person. I'm just wondering if you've had any thoughts of killing yourself, Jim. Uh, that's a shame attenuation, but it has been personalized. Uh, and I think that degree of intentionality is so important. And one of the things that in uh, online courses that are so meaningful to us is that we honestly believe that, you know, learning how to do something like the case approach, it's worth four hours or six hours of time of concentrated time, which is what those two courses are, four and six hours of thinking about nothing but how we uncover suicidal ideation and then consolidating it and consolidating it, letting them see it done, watch a video, then go back, ask, force them to look at questions about it, rethink it, reread about it, till at the end of that six hours, they've really come away with something they can translate into their practices. But as far as our thinking, we're going, my gosh, for a mental health professional who often is trained between two and four years, wouldn't we take six hours to just simply study this particular thing? Uh, and my answer would be, geez, I, I hope that's what these courses do for people. It allows people, by the way, the courses are not things for people who aren't really motivated or vested. They're, they're tough courses. We push people in the, in the online courses. You got to stick with it. It takes uh, thinking. Uh, it's challenging. Uh, I think it's very interesting from the feedback we get from people. But, you know, you don't take them unless you want to be pushed to become a master clinician at uncovering suicidal ideation. But I can't imagine why we wouldn't want to do that. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us to talk about the case approach. Oh, um, my pleasure. Yeah. And I, if there's nothing, does anyone else have any final thoughts before we wrap up this extended version? I just want to say, like, coming in here knowing nothing about this, although I can't say fully knowing nothing about this, because I think your approach has been successful enough that little bits of it divorced from the name have crept into teachings I've gotten and kind of yeah. their, their way into things I do, but just hearing it from the source and, and uh, the way that you're thinking about it, I, I really think that you're right. It will save lives. And I'm happy to, I think I'll probably re-listen to this podcast um, a few times after it comes out. Um, really an honor to have you. Oh, Hey, thanks. That means a lot to me, Alan. You know, uh, also, you know, you, you don't want to, uh, I mean, you're hesitant. To, uh, how can I say this? Uh, I don't like people who push their own products, but I mean, we really believe in this thing. And we really believe that if people, uh, if, to any degree that you come away thinking that and can help people to learn about this, these courses, we think every, if every psychiatric resident took the six hour course before they took call, we're saved lives. I mean, I really believe we're saved lives. Uh, and, um, uh, it's how to get the word out on it. And, you know, I can't really do that. It's got to come from other people, but if you find that you can do that at all, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah. 
All right. And that will do it for this extended oh, version of our podcast. 